Hello, hello. Good almost afternoon. Hope everybody's had a good morning. I've had a very productive morning on several different projects. This being my favorite. So it is March 21st. So we're looking at Proverbs 21. And I'm going to start with the last verse. Let's see if I can adjust this a little bit better. Will this move at all? It does move. Okay. Y'all, I don't know who got me my, my uh, tripod for my phone. It is fantastic. And if anybody overhears somebody saying, I sent Danae a tripod, I want you to say, oh my word, she talks about it all the time. And she says, thank you, thank you, thank you. I just love this thing. So wonderful. Okay, <clears throat> let's start with verse 31, the very last verse, because this chapter is sandwiched with an understanding that the Lord is in control. And that is so important for us. Whatever we are going through, whatever you are facing, no matter how difficult it is, just know that the Lord is in control, that the Lord sees you, that he cares about you, that he has good plans for you, that he is not going to leave you or forsake you, and that he is going to work all things out for your good. He will, he, it's his plan and the plan is in the works. You just need to hold on, my friend, hold on. The horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. This is twofold understanding. And that is that we need to prepare when, a, when you prepare a horse for battle, that's a lot of training. That horse has been being trained since it's since it was born. Um, it's many years of training and we should be prepared. Just because the Lord is ultimately in control does not mean that humans should just be uh, lazy and not caring and not not preparing. I mean, all of Proverbs is about working hard and being diligent and planning and so forth. So we do have a part to play. Um, but ultimately, and especially when we have been in a place of preparation, we are doing the will of the Lord and therefore safety is of the Lord. Um, let's go and connect that to Verse 1 of uh, Proverbs 21. Verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wants. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. I know that politics are very frustrating. And, uh, you know, the Bible says when the, when the, wicked rule um, that there is mourning. And when the righteous rule, there is rejoicing. 
But ultimately, the Lord is in control. The Bible says God sets up kings and sets down kings. And I don't pretend to fully understand why the Lord would allow um, a king who is unjust and unfair to have any time ruling, but they do. We see it throughout um, throughout the Old Testament and even God's um, with among God's people of Israel. We see through um, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, Ezra, Nehemiah, we see even Esther. Esther is about, the whole book of Esther is about a king um, not being pleasant toward the people of God. He's taken the wrong insight. So, but here's what I do know ultimately. Again, just like we read in um, verse 31, the horse is prepared for battle, but safety is of the Lord. In the same way, whatever king is on the throne, it's in the hand of the Lord. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And the same way that the rivers of water can be channeled, um, the Lord turns the king's heart however he needs it. That's why even if somebody wicked is in authority, even if somebody is president that we do not like um, his agenda, we do not feel like that his agenda is righteous or moral, we need to be prayerful about it. Because the Lord can turn the heart of the king. And if the way the Lord turns the heart of the king is by running that river dry, <laughs> he can do that. So let's make sure that we are very prayerful about these things. This is a very interesting verse. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Um, I posted this from Word Song app, uh, the song that is this verse. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. This is really cool because I have thought of this word pondereth as meaning think about. The Lord pondereth the heart. So the Lord thinks about the hearts. But pondereth means taken, to regulate, to measure, to balance. This is, you know, the, the original, um, you know, this of course is King James. So this is an old language, which is why we have pondereth instead of just ponders. But the word ponders does not just mean think about. It means to regulate, to measure, to balance, to make even, to make right, to be adjusted. And this is again, a very encouraging verse, especially if you are a mother of a prodigal, somebody who was away from the Lord, away from the path of righteousness, that child of yours or that spouse of yours or whoever it is that you're worried about, to them, the way they are doing seems right in their own eyes. But the Lord regulates their heart. The Lord makes even and makes right their heart. The Lord adjusts their heart. Oh, oh my goodness. What a powerful insight. What a faith building insight to know that even though they think they are doing right in their own eyes, God is able to change their heart 
in Jesus' name, be encouraged about the friend or the loved one that you are worried about. Be encouraged and keep praying for them. The enemy would like to keep them off track, but you stay in prayer and you pronounce this over that person in prayer. You speak it in Jesus' name. Lord, you ponder my kid's heart. Lord, you make their heart right. You adjust their heart. Their heart is is going towards one direction and I am praying in Jesus' name that your word be fulfilled and that you will adjust their thinking, adjust their heart, adjust their desires, make it right, make it even, make it balanced. Woo, hallelujah in Jesus' name. Oh, I love the word of the Lord. Give me a second. I need a swig of my water. This is my sparkling water. <laughs> Give me a minute. <clears throat> Okay. So, verse 3. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So, this goes in line. To do justice and judgment let me see, where did I write this down? Verse three. I wrote this down somewhere. Well, I remember looking it up, but um, <clears throat> to do justice and judgment. Oh, I know what I'm thinking about when we get to the word do judgment in another verse. I'm going to come back to this. That's what I'm thinking about. But to do justice or to do what's right and judgment, to make the right call, um, to understand that there is a way that is right, that there is a judgment, there is an ordinance. God's way is higher than our ways and the word of God is going to judge us in the end. So to do justice and judgment, to, so, uh, to live according to what is right and what has been ordained of the Lord is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Here's what's very important about this understanding. During this time that Proverbs was written, they were still making animal sacrifices. And, and, and it was part of their every year, month by month, ritual and spiritual requirement to make a sacrifice. If a baby was born, there was a certain sacrifice that was to be made. Um, if, if there was sin, there was a certain sacrifice that was to be made. When it came time for the Passover, there were sacrifices to be made. Sacrifice of an animal was a normal routine if you were a follower of God's ways. And so this is huge because it's saying to do what's right and and to obey the the word of god is more important than to the lord than sacrifice and we see that again in proverbs 21:27 did i write proverbs 21:27 down somewhere i feel like i did um oh yes i did the it's in our chapter right here 27. 
The sacrifice of the wicked is abomination. How much more when he bringeth it with a wicked mind or with false intentions or just to look good. So we see this literally happening in, I wrote down the reference here in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. This is where King Saul got tired of waiting for the prophet to come and make a sacrifice. And because he was tired of waiting for Saul, for, for um, Samuel to come and make this sacrifice, Saul jumped the gun and sacrificed. And when Samuel got there and what he sacrificed, oh my goodness, what he sacrificed was specifically something that God had told Saul not to touch. Saul, the prophet Samuel, from the hand of the Lord, had told uh, uh, Saul not to take any cattle, not to take any um, sheep whenever he went and conquered um, I can't remember what nation they were conquering because I didn't really study this right now. Saul, uh, star, leave it. Saul, I called Saul, star Saul. Leave it, girl, be obedient. When when um, Saul went and conquered, he got uh, prideful in his, in his um, office of king. And instead of killing Saul, all the cattle like God told him to. God said, don't take any cattle. Don't leave anything alive. Kill everything in this battle. And instead of doing that, King Saul took trophies to make himself look good. Leave it, star. Leave it. Leave it, baby. Saul took trophies to make himself look good. And in so doing, when Samuel came... Samuel saw that there were these sacrifices from the cattle that God had specifically said, don't leave alive. And whenever Samuel rebuked Saul for this, Saul said, oh, I, I was just trying to make a sacrifice. What was Saul doing? This right here that we read in verse 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination how much more when he brings it with a wicked mind. There was nothing about King Saul's sacrifice that was honorable. It was all about hypocrisy. It was all about making himself look good. And so there are some situations when it's better to have a pure heart than to push through with the sacrifice because the point of that sacrifice is to make you look good. And that is not acceptable to the Lord. Obedience. First Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said to Saul, obedience is better than sacrifice. All you had to do was simply obey the word of God. But because you did not obey, you thought you were going to make yourself look better with a sacrifice when obedience was really all that you needed to do. Leave it, Star. Leave it. Okay. See, Star, I'm preaching to you right now. 
I'm trying to preach to you. Listen to the word of the Lord. All right. Let me see if I can swing around here and show you Star. Star, come on. Come here and show the people. You need to obey the Lord. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go on here. A high look. This is, man, this is so interesting. I, th- this, this is so interesting. And high look and a proud heart and the plowing of the wicked is sin. Okay. This is what a high look means. High, of course, I say of course, in case you don't know, it means haughty. Star, leave it. I'm so nervous if I open the door and let her out, she's going to go chasing after something and I'll have to leave here and go run after her. Just leave it, babe. So a haughty look. Now, this doesn't just mean like, this doesn't just mean making your eyes look proud. Okay. It doesn't just mean looking stuck up. It means this word look is this, this is the Hebrew word ayan or something like that. I don't really know how to pronounce it. Star, you're killing me smalls. All right, y'all hold on. Let me let her outside. She's not going to stop. Sorry about that. Okay. This word look means showing mental qualities. Showing mental qualities. Honestly, when I really broke down these words, I'm not positive why, but a college professor was all I saw. And I love smart people. I, I literally, when I say I love them, what I mean is I, I when somebody share, starts, when I start seeing that somebody is highly intelligent, I, I get a crush on them. <laughs> I mean, on their, on their, on their smarts, on their intelligence. I just love to hear smart people talk. I love it. So I'm not trying to ridicule people, but here is something to keep in mind in our day where we really push for our kids to go to college. And I think it's great to go to college. Both of my kids went to college. Madison is in college right now. I love it. I'm all for it, but we need to somehow while we are raising our children Make sure our children understand that just because a person has a degree does not mean they are wise. It doesn't mean they know it all. I was well into my 30s before I realized that not everybody who has the title doctor attached to their name, like for instance, they've earned a doctorate degree, doesn't mean that they are the smartest people in their class. It means they are the most enduring people in their class. It does mean that they're smart. I'm not trying to take away from anyone who's got a doctorate degree and say they're not smart. They are highly intelligent. They are smart. But there are people who who are just as intelligent without the title doctorate or doctor applied to their name. 
If a person earns a doctorate degree, it's not only because they are intelligent, they are intelligent, but it's also because they have stayed in the system longer. They have stayed in the system longer. And so the reason I'm saying this is so that people who are engaging in college yourself or are sending your children to college, we need to raise our children with the understanding that just because a person is called Dr. So-and-so and they are their their college professor does not mean that they have wisdom to conduct a good life. I know many, many, many people with a doctorate who do not know how to hold their family together. Now, I'm sitting here talking to you as a divorced woman, so I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. But I am trying to say, just because a person has a doctorate does not mean they know everything about how to be successful in life. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that um, just because they are showing mental qualities that are very lofty, does not mean they know how to have a well-functioning life. It does not mean they know how to pay their bills. It does not mean they have a nice house. It does not mean they know how to raise children. It does not mean they know how to be a good spouse. This scripture, this book right here, tells us how to do that. And unfortunately, most people that are operating in our higher education systems that we call colleges and universities have a high haughty ability of showing their mental qualities, but they do not know how to function well in life. And it is a high look and a proud heart. Proud, of course, also means haughty and heart means inner man or will. People who have this, this, pride, this arrogance about their mental qualities and their their ability to have their own will and the plowing of the wicked. The word plowing literally means to till the ground. And again, I can't help but think of young people going into colleges, having their, their youth plowed up their, their learning abilities plowed up with professor sowing seed in it. Oh my goodness, it's sin. And we all know that the wages of sin is death. Yeah, anyway, it was just a very interesting verse. I never even really knew that that was there till today. Um, let's see, that, that is 2-4, I mean 21-4. Um, 21.5. So this is, again, very interesting. So we've got verse 4, which is talking about a proud look. So somebody who is proud, very haughty about their mental qualities. And they're very proud and haughty about their ability to have their own will. And they're out there tilling the ground, which in my mind, again, the scripture doesn't say a college professor. That just, to me, defines a college professor. <laughs> but the thoughts of the diligent tend toward plenteousness. The thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness. 
but to everyone that is hasty only to want. When we're hasty in our judgments, when we don't really take time to think them through, then we're going to end up with a, with a lot of want. We're going to end up losing some things. Um, so, um, let's see. 21.5, this word, um, the thoughts, the Hebrew word is makasaba. This this word where that H is for us is like a sound for the Hebrew language. But this is the Hebrew word that this word, our English word thoughts comes from. And it means plan and purpose. So when we make a plan and when we have purpose, when we really think things through and we are diligent, the word diligent, this is the Hebrew word, haras, and it means a strict decision. And and when you've got something that's strict, that means you're very narrow-minded about it. You have you you've gone from this broadness and you've narrowed it down. The same way you you have a trench in the ground, you've got this big pasture and you're going to dig a trench in it or a moat, or a ditch. Well, that means out of this whole broad five-acre field, you are going to dig something that is narrow with strong borders. And so when you, are, when you think something through in a very strict way, that leads to plenteousness. <laughs> the thoughts of the diligent tend only to plenteousness. Plenteousness means a lot. You get a lot. But when you're constantly making hasty decisions without thinking it through, then you're, you're going to end up and want. You're going to always be needing more. Okay. Verse 9 and verse 19 are very important for us women because they go hand in hand. It is better to dwell in a corner of the housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. <laughs> oh my goodness. When women are constantly wanting to fight, a man would rather just go live on the corner at the top of his house with nothing than to have this big old wide house when she's always wanting to fight. In verse 19, it's better to live in the wilderness than with a contentious and an angry woman. Contentious. That, that implies that this anger is because she is contentious. And being contentious means you're picking fights. And if you as a woman are finding yourself angry and contentious and always wanting to brawl about something, you know, I, I was talking with a friend um, the other day and I was talking about how men and women are just different and women are never going to truly understand a man and a man is never going to truly understand a woman. And I will say from being not because I'm, I'm so smart, but the nature of being in the same church for my entire life. So that is pushing 50 years. That means I've seen a lot of marriages. 
I've seen a lot. I've and not. I've not just seen a lot of marriages. I've seen a lot of generations from the same family. Like, I, I can say I've seen. Um, I've seen at least three generations, maybe four generations now of people getting married. The parents, then their kids who are a little bit older than me. And then my generation of people who got married. And now then my generation's kids are getting married. So I've been in the same congregation. I've seen at least four generations of marriages. And by that nature alone, I will say that when a family, when kids are raised in a house where they see what it takes to keep a marriage together, then they are then they are better off because it's almost like they've been in this school. This generation was in this school. This generation has been in this school and this school. <laughs> and now this generation is in these generations of schools. And so you do have that uh, leg up on other people. Whereas when you're the first generation that you're like, okay, I'm going to have a healthy, happy marriage and I'm going to do it God's way. You're going to need to get a lot of outside counsel because it does not come natural. Having a good marriage does not come natural. It's not an instinct. Your instinct is to pull apart from each other. And that's where you get this constant brawling, this constant anger where you feel contentious. That's where it comes from because it's natural for a woman to not understand a man and a man to not understand a woman. That is normal. What is abnormal is people who have done years and years of study and of trial and error and of forgiving and of getting back together. That's what's not natural. What's natural is to leave each other as soon as you're mad. That's what's natural. <laughs> oh my goodness. So if you're finding yourself constantly brawling, constantly angry, constantly contentious, go get help. Go get help because I am a witness that it is possible to have a marriage for 50 plus years. It doesn't come natural. There is a lot of forgiveness. There is a lot of just deciding, oh, well, let me tell you this too. It is possible to have a marriage that is not constant brawling, anger, and contention. That is also possible. And it becomes more and more natural, just like for an athlete. The more you build your muscles, the easier it is to lift weights. The longer distance you run, then the easier it is to run longer and longer distances. The more you forgive, the easier it gets to forgive. If, if, however, you are still throwing each other under the bus, you're still calling each other ugly names, you're still um, just, just digging at each other to dig at each other, you need outside help. Go get it. 
It can be found in books. It can be found in podcasts. It can be found in talking to your pastor. It can be found in going to another couple who has a a good marriage and talking through and finding out why. And it is worth it. Please do it. Please don't be this woman, contentious, angry, and brawling. Please don't be that woman. Just please don't. Please jump ahead to Proverbs 31 and be the virtuous woman, okay? Make it make it your husband's fault that, that things are difficult, not yours. <laughs> All right, so let's see. Okay, I need to stop, but there is one thing I want to... I I love all of these. Oh, my word. Every single verse in here I love so much. All right. I'm going to end with this, though, because I experienced something on Twitter. When the scorner is punished, the simple is made wise. And when the wise is instructed, he he receiveth knowledge. When the scorner is punished, the simple is made wise. So that means... If we want the simple to be made wise, that means we need to punish the scorner. If the simple is going to be made wise, then that means somebody needs to punish the scorner. And because the simple is made wise by this, then that means the wise is instructed. And when the wise is instructed, he receives knowledge. So for somebody to be punished is a good thing. We live in a world that's all about don't judge me, but we need to, we need to. Here's, let me stay in this line, Proverbs 27, five. So on March 27, we will get to this chapter, but it says open rebuke is better than secret love. Open rebuke. That rebuke is a punishment. It means Somebody is doing wrong and you say, stop doing that. Open rebuke is better than secret love. Now, I'm going to tell you, my personality is to avoid being the person giving the open rebuke. I hate having to tell somebody they're doing wrong. I loathe it. And I will do it when I have to, but I hate it. I I do love the love. (laughs) I do love the love, but open rebuke is better than quiet love. Open rebuke is better. Now you can't go around doing nothing but rebuking. You do have to get vocal about love. You do have to, a spoonful of sugar does make the medicine go down. But this 27.5 is letting us know that there is value in rebuke. And what is the value? The value is that the scorner, the word scorner means Make mouths at. (laughs) So a person who's constantly mouthing at something, talking arrogantly, deriding, mocking. When, When a scorner is punished, the simple is made wise. The simple means the naive. So, you know, those people who they, we call them followers. We call them followers and, and they, they follow the crowd. There are a lot of those people. The Bible calls them simple, but this word simple, the Hebrew word is pithy or pithy, and it means naive. And they are the ones who, um, they're not going to be the loud ones in the crowd. 
They're going to be the ones who have fun with whoever is producing the fun. And so if there is somebody who is a scorner and he is punished openly, well, then that naive person is going to be made wise. First Timothy 5.20 says to rebuke before all that others may fear. Now, this is the New Testament. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and he's giving this young man understanding and instruction for how to pastor a church. And he says, rebuke before all that others may fear. Now, now I'm going to address what I saw on Twitter that made me very frustrated. (sighs) Now you see where Morgan gets her growling from. On Twitter the other day, somebody posted a news, local news article about a, now I have no idea what this man is currently doing. I don't know. I know at one point he was an apostolic pastor. And the news article was the fact that he is accused. Now, you know, things have got to go through the legal system, but I'm going to assume that this is accurate. He has been accused of molesting a minor. I believe the girl was 16 years old. That is disgusting. That is a sin. That is immoral. That is evil, wicked. I absolutely, it turns my stomach. I hate it. And I hope justice is served. But here's what I did not like. I did not like at all that a apostolic person posted the link to that news article. (sighs) First Corinthians five verses 12 through 13 is letting us know that there is sin that happens and it should be judged within the church. It's not that it should not be judged, but we can't, we cannot air our business to the world. Now, if there was some type of social media that was just church people, okay, I'm okay with the rest of the church knowing this person did a disgusting, stupid, terrible, evil, wicked, dark thing. I'm okay with the church knowing it. But I did not like that it was on Twitter. And people who are enemies of God, people who are enemies of the church were given this information That made me sick because here's the thing. 
Do you know the story of King David at all? Do you know that the man who was the apple of God's eye, the man who birthed through, through adultery, birthed the son who wrote the book we are reading right now. David, through adultery, birthed Solomon. Now, I mean, with, with, uh, with, um, not Abigail, you know, the woman who was on the roof, her name's not coming to me right now, but through adultery, David, he ended up marrying her. And after he married her, he had Solomon who gave us Proverbs. David killed the husband of the man he had the, of the woman he had the affair with. He killed her husband, y'all. That is disgusting of David. That is evil of David. That is dark. That is wicked. I do not approve of David's behavior at all. Bathsheba, thank you, Helen. I do not approve of David's behavior at all. But neither am I airing it to the public. And you know what? Nathan the prophet did not air it either. He came and talked to David about it. Now, let me ask you something. With God's grace and mercy being as abundant as it is, forgiving David the way he forgave David, and on and on and on, we can talk about Judah. We can talk about Judah who went and hired a prostitute. <laughs> Y'all, the disgusting behavior of humans is all through this book. Judah, uh, Jacob's son, was married, hired a prostitute, and that prostitute ended up being his daughter-in-law who purposefully dressed herself like a prostitute and sold herself to Judah. If Judah had not been so disgusting as to go hire a prostitute, she couldn't have trapped him this way. But because she did trap him this way, she had a child by her father-in-law. And at that point, Judah said, She's been more righteous than I have. You'd have to read the whole story to understand that. But my point is that people do disgusting things. And God's grace and mercy is of such that God utilized Judah's line to bring about the birth of Christ. Actually, I, I turned right to it. My word, y'all, we cannot publicly throw people under the bus just because they've been stupid, just because they've done very wrong. The world may get a hold of somebody's wrong story and tear us to shreds. But how is this man going to be saved? If... This man that committed this terrible thing that I saw on Twitter. Now, now, 
he, he actually turned himself in. The news article I read said that he turned himself in after months of investigation. That's what the news article said. He turned himself in. Good for him. So now this man needs to be saved. And he knows absolutely everyone in that community who reads that news story knows who he is, what he's done, how evil he has been, how disgusting he has been. But that doesn't mean God hates him. God wants this man who has done this terrible thing to turn his heart around and to repent. And you know what? If this was your son who had done this terrible thing, you would want God's grace and mercy to extend to him as well. If, if it was your son who was a 40-year-old person who raped somebody and was taken off to jail, where he belongs, might I add. I'm all for him going to jail. I'm all for it. Yes, take him and put him where he belongs. But you would still want him saved. You would still want God's mercy applied to his life. I would. And so I'm saying, let's, even though open rebuke is better than secret love, and even though the scripture does say rebuke before all that others may fear, the all is talking about the church. Rebuke before the whole church, not the whole media, not on Twitter. If you hear of an apostolic person who has committed a crime, you don't post it on Facebook or Twitter or any other social media. You take that person before God and you pray for them. Oh, it, clearly you can tell it made me so angry to have read this information on Twitter. On Twitter, y'all. No. No, 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 no. This rebuke before all so that the simple is made wise is talking about within the fold of the church. Now, again, let me say, I'm all for them. Let them go to jail. <laughs> I don't care. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to hide it from, I'm not trying to hide it so that they can become predators that's disgusting. Put them in a safe place so that they, if they've got a, a mental illness and a sin that they, they are giving themselves over to, yeah, lock them up. But I'm just saying, don't repeat it, y'all. Let God do his work. Put them in jail if we've got to, but let's let them be saved. And, and so this person they're going to know that the entire community that this news piece was released to is going to look at them like they're a disgusting monster. <sighs> but they don't need to think that the church won't receive them and love them and have mercy on them. It's the, the church is a hospital. It's where sick people, sick of mind and sick of soul, are supposed to come. All right. I preached my sermon. Amen. I've preached my sermon. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. God bless. I love you. And you know what? The person who tweeted this, I love you too. <laughs>